Welcome back to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack, where we take you all across the state. Uh, and even other states today, we'll have a story about the St. Louis Cardinals. Well, uh, yeah, they're leaving the country for one this weekend. They'll be in London. We'll talk about that. But uh, they'll be playing out of state uh, in an old ballpark. We'll tell you uh, about uh, the plans for next summer. We'll also take another look at the 2023 Missouri legislative session now that it's in the rearview mirror. Uh, we'll hear more on this agriculture omnibus bill from Republican Representative Rick Francis. That is coming up. And a new report is out about the state of Missouri's hospital workforce. Elisa Nelson talks with Jill Williams with the Missouri Hospital Association, who says the hospital workforce vacancy and turnover rates are still significantly higher compared to before the pandemic. We've been collecting uh, workforce turnover and vacancy data since 2001. Um, we do request data on 28 healthcare positions in hospitals and four positions in clinic and physician practices. So this report that we just released takes a look back at the calendar year 2022. And within that, um, those survey results, you know, the data has indicated a slight, a very slight decrease from 2021 in vacancy and turnover rates among those healthcare positions that we surveyed. Um, however, both our turnover and vacancy rates among all the positions were still significantly higher um, than what we saw pre-pandemic. So even though we've had a slight ease, uh, again, those numbers are just much higher than they were back in 2018 and prior. And what kind of rates are we talking about statewide? Well, when we're looking at just kind of overall statewide vacancy, uh, we see turnover rates in 2022 of 23.1% for turnover. And when we look at vacancy, about 14.8%. And according to our survey, you know, when we look at nursing, Missouri has around 33,000 nurses working in our hospitals, and we have about 7,000 nurse positions. So statewide vacancy and turnover for registered nurses uh, for 2022, we had about 19.4% in turnover, and we saw 17.4% as our vacancy rate. Again, much higher than the pre-pandemic years. Okay. And um, Jill, when you're doing this survey, uh, do you uh, find out what is causing some of these factors? What is factoring into why the vacancy and the turnover rates are what they are? In healthcare, we're seeing a lot of different things kind of happening, all converge, converging at once. Um, we do have this ongoing shortage of workers, and I know that's not only the healthcare industry, but other industries as well. But we're facing those you know, demographic shifts, uh, aging population, a workforce nearing retirement, uh, low talent. You know, we have a, a, a not enough people in our talent pool. Um, unemployment rates are at an all-time low. And then in healthcare, we've got other things that are hitting us, such as the demand for healthcare is growing. We've got workers who are burnt out and exhausted from co from COVID-19. Uh, a desire for those workers for more flexible work, remote work, or digital options. And uh, so a lot of things uh, like that, as well as, you know, labor costs. 
So we have, um, you know, labor costs provides the greatest opportunity for cost reduction with our hospitals. And we're seeing our hospitals, you know, they've bumped up wages, offering sign-on or retention bonuses, uh, may, maybe paying more overtime hours. But those wages really have not kept pace because they've been eroded by inflation, increased cost of living. Um, and so it's not hit, hitting staff's pocketbooks um, like it like it would or should. We've also been uh, up against some nursing travel demand. So uh, as you may have heard in the news, the demand for travel nurses really skyrocketed in 2021. Uh, we had nurses kind of making the switch to traveling for that higher pay, flexible schedules, uh, maybe the opportunity to work in different locations. And although as those travel wages have came down slightly, uh, you know, here in Missouri, we still remain one of the top states in terms of nursing travel demand. We're actually at number two uh, of highest usage of travel nurses uh, in the United States. So those are some of the things we're seeing um, is when we look at turnover and vacancies. And that's in kind of the state of the nurses, state of the healthcare workforce, I guess I'd call it. So um, with your vacancy rates and your turnover rates, are you also factoring in um, the travel nurses in there? Does that count? No, we look at fully employed nurses. Got it. Okay. So what about the use of like uh, international positions, Jill? Do you um, also take a look at that as well? Um, we do have many of our institutions have to use international nurses um, that they recruit over from other countries. And that's not only in nursing. We also see that in other positions, such as our medical lab technician or medical lab technologist. Um, that's another one of those careers that there's a looming shortage of skilled workers. We've got an aging workforce, and we're really seeing a, kind of a shrinking of the number of accredited training programs offered for that role. And also, just lack of awareness. A lot of students or adults um, don't know about this career, but it's you know one that works in the lab, and it's very necessary um, to be able to you know use those use the equipment, see the results, and be able to um, work in that field. What about your survey as far as regions go, whether it's nurses, whether it's uh, lab techs, dietitians, whatever? What regions of the state are especially in need of hospital positions? Yes, when we look across all positions, we're really seeing a high need of several of those positions in the south central and southeast part of the state. Um, when we kind of break that down and look at a few specific positions, for instance, registered nurse, that is one where we have a high turnover and vacancy in south central and southeast Missouri. Um, respiratory therapist is another occupation that we saw a huge need. There was a large demand during the pandemic, and that is more, we're seeing a turnover and vacancy, high rates in the southeast and the northwest part of the state. Uh, and then in lab techs, uh, that medical lab tech position that we talked about, again, um, seeing turnover and vacancy throughout the state, but especially in the northeast part of Missouri. So, Kind of depending on the occupation, you can see the turnover or vacancy maybe surges in various regions of Missouri. If uh, hospitals are having to fill positions with more travel positions, do they have to pay more then? And, and then in turn, that affects their bottom line. 
Yes, it does. A lot of things uh, affect the hospital bottom line, and, and definitely travel nursing is one of those. So hospitals have been facing, you know, significant financial pressures, and, you know, those things are, and inflation, the cost of inflation really hasn't kept up as well. And those are driving a large share of hospitals in a negative operating margins. And one of the, uh, probably the highest budget item on any hospital balance sheet is salaries and benefits. So um, when paying those higher salaries to those travel nursing wage, to those travel nurses does um, affect the bottom line. So not only the bottom line, but it also influences a hospital's culture. And again, just adding that significant cost to their operations. A new report is out about the state of Missouri's hospital workforce. Jill Williams, the vice president of workforce development with the Missouri Hospital Association, joins Show Me Today to talk about the report. I'm Elisa Nelson. Um, so does your report go on to give any recommendations, Jill? Sure. Yes, it does. Um, one of the challenges that we're really facing in healthcare is lack of faculty, especially when it comes to nursing faculty, although we are seeing a need for faculty in other um, healthcare occupations. But when we're talking about um, nurse educators, you know, it's really important for academia and hospitals to part partner together to try to explore some creative or innovative ways to address the shortage of educators, uh, maybe providing tuition reimbursement to nurses to help them return to pursue degrees in education, or working with those retirees uh, or people who are getting ready to retire to embrace nursing education as a way to give back to the workforce. Other things that we are looking at, or hospitals are looking at doing is, you know, pipeline development. So this is really kind of a, I would say, important time for workforce stakeholders to collaborate, to try to find innovative ways to address workforce gaps. So, you know, building that career uh, awareness early and even awareness in parents as influence, influencers to our youth. Um, you know, working with our 12K schools, offering job shadow, work-based learning, uh, loan repayments, hiring students into our healthcare roles prior to graduating high school, and then helping them advance their careers and through uh, education and, and on-the-job training. I think also, um, you know, looking from within, so not only developing the pipeline, but retaining the current workforce that, that, that we have. You know, are we uh, conducting diverse recruitment efforts? Are we creating a streamlined recruiting and onboarding process? Are we using those earn while you learn or apprenticeship style training programs um, to train and advance our workforce? And also leveraging those grants and uh, funding dollars that are out there. Um, one is that I'll mention is the Fast Track Workforce Incentive Grant uh, here in Missouri. And 46% of those students enrolled in that program are obtaining training in allied health. Uh, I also think, you know, work redesign. So as I mentioned earlier, hospitals, uh, hospital employees really have a new desire for more flexibility. So whether that's, you know, more shift options, variable start times, um, self-scheduling or gig employment, uh, those are all things that, uh, that healthcare workers are looking for. And I also think it's a good time to rethink the use of technology. So virtual nursing, telehealth, um, artificial intelligence, how can we use technology to unburden staff but also improve efficiency, productivity, and their job satisfaction? 
MissouriHealthCareers.com, is that where they can also go to find the survey or can they oh. check it out uh, in another spot? Yes. On the survey, you can go to Missouri Hospital Association's website, which is www.mhanet.com. And uh, if you click on workforce, you can find it there under um, workforce surveys and data. All right. Jill Williams with Missouri Hospital Association. If you want to hear more, subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. One in seven Missouri children is food insecure, not knowing where their next meal may come from. Drive to Feed Kids is a year-round effort of Missouri farmers, agribusiness, and farm groups to address food insecurity in our state. Through meal packing events, gifted food products, hog processing, and monetary donations, the ag community provides support to the agencies serving our most vulnerable citizens. Visit mofarmerscare.com drive to learn more. That's mofarmerscare.com drive. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids opens the door for every Missourian to make a difference in the fight against hunger in our state. All proceeds are dedicating to feeding Missouri's network food banks who work daily to alleviate hunger. Visit mofarmerscare.com drive to learn more and join the effort. Having enough food is a concern for many Missouri families, and it isn't restricted to rural or urban areas. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day. Among children, the numbers are even higher. To ensure Missouri children have the food they need to thrive, Missouri's agricultural community launched Drive to Feed Kids six years ago. Visit mofarmerscare.com drive to learn more and join the efforts. As many as one in eight Missourians face food insecurity every day, and among children, the numbers are even higher. The Drive to Feed Kids Hogs for Hunger program gives Missouri pig farmers and 4-H and FFA swine exhibitors the opportunity to address hunger in their communities by committing pigs locally or at the Missouri State Fair. One pig can feed more than 500 Missourians in need. Learn how you can participate at mofarmerscare.com drive. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We're back on Show Me Today, looking back at the 2023 Missouri Legislative Session. Anthony Morbeth talks with Republican Representative Rick Francis about the Agriculture Omnibus Bill. The bill started out as uh, an industrial hemp repeal bill. I had passed language back in 2018 
which put the Missouri Department of Agriculture over uh, industrial hemp being planted here in the state of Missouri. And so we fast forward from 2018, uh, and now we have not only uh, medical marijuana, but recreational marijuana, and we're not seeing the, the same uh, interest in, in growing industrial hemp as what we were. And besides that, at the time, we had a $750 fee that you had to pay to the Department of Agriculture to plant industrial hemp. Uh, and so this House Bill 202 started out as a removal, a repeal of the Missouri Department of Agriculture having authority over the industrial hemp program. Uh, now, the USDA has a, a process, and so it just streamlined it more. So really what we started out doing was taking language out of statute, and lo and behold, it comes back to the House from the Senate, and we have 12 bills, ag bills, that were tacked onto it. So kind of ironic. And we'll start with hemp, industrial hemp. I do think this is rather interesting, not just because of its correlation and association with what you mentioned, but uh, when I look at industrial hemp, the the one thing that I immediately see is, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's used for things like clothing, uh, various types of shoes, things like that. Is that right? Absolutely. It has actually thousands of uses. And, and so uh, in Washington, Missouri, there is a hemp concrete plant being built. Uh, and outside of Kansas City, they're looking to grow hemp, uh, but it's all about being in a reasonable range to transport hemp to a processor uh, so that it can be made into whatever uh, you want to make it. I'd say the, the, the largest uh, thing in the future for hemp is going to be plastics. Uh, when you look at uh, cars and all the, the plastics and so forth, the car industry has a lot of interest in hemp. So hoping to grow by leaps and bounds Missouri's agricultural hemp industry, would that be fair to say? Yeah. Uh, I hope we look at the model like was used with ethanol, uh, with corn growers and so forth, and um, that we would uh, create a plant where Farmers could take their corn and have another market available, not just for uh, food, but also for petroleum. Increasing the limits by about one and a half million to encourage more production of biodiesel here in Missouri. Sure. The, uh, the bill that uh, is on uh, 202, the biodiesel and ethanol tax credit fix, um, First of all, it started out as simply an accounting fix to the ethanol and biodiesel bill that was approved last year. And so this year they, they come back and they had that uh, tax credit fix uh, having to do with calendar years and, and when does the tax credit start and so forth. But you're exactly right. The bill did increase the, the current fiscal uh, yearly cap of $4 million to $5.5 million biodiesel. And I um, specifically, I, I don't know much about biodiesel other than that it's um, 
you know, like a, a, a variation or an alternative to biodiesel. But anytime I go see my folks over in uh, neighboring Illinois, I always drive by this huge biodiesel plant. So I, I think that this is extremely important. And what is, uh, just for the sake of our listeners here for who may not necessarily know, is it literally just an alternative of just regular diesel? Yes, it, it has soy uh, oil in it. So where ethanol is made by uh, using corn, biodiesel would be made by adding to it uh, soybeans. And so you would take the, the soybean, you would crush it, you would take the oil out of it, and that would be used uh, in conjunction with diesel, and so it would be a blend of the two. And the uh, lubricity of the uh, biodiesel is much better for the engines. The emissions are much cleaner. So there are a lot of reasons for us to uh, keep working towards biodiesel plants. And we're certainly hopeful uh, to get one down here in southeast Missouri. Uh, Cargill has some interest in that. So we just keep t uh, trying to move forward and, and bring more biodiesel, more blending of the soybean oil and diesel to make a better fuel. It's kind of a giant, I guess what I would call, omnibus agriculture Ask sort of a farm bill here um, on, on Show Me Today, and we we're talking about biodiesel, we we're talking about industrial hemp, and, and we we're mentioning in regards to biodiesel the authorization of fuel tax credits, or I guess increasing that limit. Well, what about tax deductions here, or, or tax exemptions, I should say? I see that there are tax exemptions for beginning farmers. Certainly something that we're interested in doing because the average age of a farmer is about 57 years old. I've heard some people quote 58, but close enough. And this legislation would allow an income tax deduction for landowners uh, who want to sell, uh, perhaps even lease their property um, with a, an arrangement with a beginning farmer. And certainly uh, this incentivization would help to... Uh, bring in a new generation of beginning farmers. You were also mentioning a little bit earlier in regards to industrial hemp and cleanup language, or I guess getting rid of language relating to uh, what the Department of Agriculture does and should do. I, I also read that there's another um, basically portion of this piece of legislation in terms of clarifying what the Department of Agriculture does and what it should and should not do and things like that. Did you feel like going into... Um, more detail in relation to that? Well, actually, back in 2018, we put language in two different departments. We really felt like that uh, uh, the Division of Health and Senior Services needed to have a, a portion of the language regarding industrial hemp, and the other needed to be over the farming and the Missouri Department of Agriculture. So, actually, there were two bills that we were repealing language and just having the state take a step back uh, and, with that, taking away the fees to, to grow it. Uh, because USDA uh, is very, very similar in language and, and process, and, and so we don't need to be duplicative of that. So uh, the USDA will now handle and be the authority over industrial hemp as we move forward. 
Also, I think it's worth mentioning just the amount of times uh, since we're taking a look at this bill and there's several facets to this bill, the amount of times we have reported on Missouri Net uh, flooding and how flooding does happen. And despite the fact that we're currently in uh, a bit of a drought, flooding does and it has happened here in Missouri in our uh, recent and our distant past. And I know that uh, you're basically looking to establish uh, basically this so-called Flood Resiliency Act. Right. Uh, the purpose of that is to improve statewide flood forecasting forecasting and monitoring uh, ability, uh, especially along the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers. Uh, certainly something that, you know, the more knowledge we have of it so forth, perhaps the, the better decisions we'll make to uh, uh, stop damage and and not only property, but lives as well. So in regards to this entire House Bill 202, was there anything else that you wanted to add before we bring this discussion to a close? Uh, yeah, perhaps a couple of things. I thought the VET student loan program was huge. Uh, when you're out here in rural Missouri, uh, it's hard to find a large animal veterinarian. And there was legislation that would uh, raise the amount of scholarships from 6 to 12, and, and that's that's huge because we definitely need to fill the gap for the large animal veterinarians that are so critical to uh, agriculture. And then perhaps also the uh, log truck uh, portion of the bill, which increases the weight of local trucks from 105,000 to 109,600. Now, the reason for that is the newer trucks have heavier axles and they're safer. Um, better brakes and so forth. So it would only make sense not to penalize um, those who are buying newer trucks that have more safe um, trucks, uh, more stable, better to brake, and so forth. So we didn't want to punish business owners who are trying to invest in, in newer and the safest vehicles. Are you expecting a signature from the governor? Absolutely. The, the governor is a farmer. I think he, he knows he will look at this and, and, and each of the, the items that we discussed here and say this is going to be good for Missouri. So I certainly anticipate that he will sign the bill. Republican Representative Rick Francis joins us on Show Me Today. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. roads. It's, it's our, our safety. safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you. Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. All the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. 
So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact, like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? No. But you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes. But if you have a concern about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Welcome back to Show Me Today. Burn Recovered is an organization based out of the St. Louis area that creates a safe space for burn survivors. Cameron Connor is here with the director of youth programs, Madeline Carson, and specialist, Kanisha Anthony. Can you talk to me about a little bit of the history and the mission of it? Kanisha, let's throw it over to you first. Yeah, so Burns Recovered, um, we started in 1983, and it was by a group of burn survivors that were in the hospital, uh, Mercy Hospital in St. Louis. Um, and we started our group meetings there, and the mission behind Burns Recovered is um, to enable burn survivors across the Midwest to live life to the fullest without limitations, fear, and insecurity. And we do that in a couple different ways. Uh, we offer recreational programming for burn survivors uh, ages 6 to 17 and their families. We uh, continue our hospital visits to the burn unit at 
Mercy Hospital. Uh, we also provide group and individual peer support to burn survivors, and we provide uh, financial assistance to burn survivors and co-survivors, which is our term for anyone who loves and cares for a burn survivor. Wow. Yeah, this uh, this operation, it, it's a substantial purpose, and it's awesome to see that there are programs like this out there so I, I guess maybe a follow-up that I would have, maybe just to get not necessarily some clarification, but just to go into it a little bit further so that people can understand. When you talk about the collaboration and the communication between Burns Recovered and then also how to basically get connected with, with burn victims, how do, how do you go about that? So um, one thing that we, we love to do is call um, us burn survivors instead of burn victims um, because we've survived what we've been through. Um, and the the biggest way to get connected, I connect with the patients that come directly into the burn unit. So when they come into the hospital, I go into the rooms and I talk to them and I talk to their families. And this is where we connect and we start doing our monthly meetings and stuff. Additionally, I would add, um, we have a very strong a support network of volunteers across the state. Um, many of our volunteers for all of our programs and our fundraising and our social events are first responders. Uh, so they are nurses, they are firefighters. Um, we get a lot of referrals that way as well. You know, a, a firefighter responds to a fire uh, and um, later connects with that family and says, hey, there's this organization. Um, nurses on in Baron Yunus across the state are aware of our programs, call us and say, hey, I have a kiddo, I have an adult who needs support, can you help them out? For those of you just now tuning in, this is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here talking about an unbelievable organization called Burns Recovered. It helps create a safe space for anyone who is a burn survivor, and it offers a plethora of camps to assist their mission. We're here with the Director of Youth Programs, Madeline Carson, and Community Support Specialist, Kenesha Anthony. So multiple different ways in order to get connected and collaborate through this. And I love that terminology, Kenesha, of burn survivors instead of strictly just burn victims, because that puts so much of a better spin on, you know, to what people have gone through and basically a way to overcome and, you know, to still be living through life and stuff of that nature. So that's, that's a great way to put it. And then so Burns Recovered offers so many fantastic services. And one of them is the burn camp that is for more of that youth category. It, from my understanding of it, it's a great way to be in a comfortable space, a safe space where you can basically relearn how to integrate and be yourself and of that nature. Can, can both of you talk about the burn camp and basically, you know, w w the mission of it, the purpose of it and anything in that regard? Just coming from experience, I was a camper. Um, I was on a house fire when I was young. So just coming out of the hospital and trying to navigate life was hard. Um, so when I started going to camp, I had a new just it, it felt like I was comfortable because I was by like minded people, people that had been through the same things that I've been. Um, so it wasn't just like, oh, we're just going to have fun. But we connected. We we basically became a family. I, I started there and then I became a board member and then I became um, an actual worker. So it just shows how much I started right here. And this is how far Burns Recovered has taken me. I'm newer to the organization. I've been with camp. Um, this will be my fifth camp season this year. And uh, 
I see a lot of our the mission of our organization lived out through camp. You know, our we our goal is to help every burn survivor live without limitations, fear, and insecurity. And at camp, they're challenged to participate in very traditional overnight camp activities, uh, horseback riding, high and low ropes courses, archery, riflery. Uh, we're on the Black River, so a bunch of water sports. And you know, if if we can help one young person see that their abilities are not limited by their burn injury, then We've met our mission. If we can provide a community for young people who many times have never met another burn survivor before they come to our camp, then we have met our goal of living without insecurity. And if we can help even one young person feel more confident um, and more comfortable in engaging with the community inside and outside of camp, then we've reduced an element of fear on them. And that's what I see is the benefits of of our burn camp. What an unbelievable purpose. It seems like it has a great structure to it. I, I love everything. I love everything about it here. Madeline, as a follow up to you, how about for some upcoming dates for any of the burn camps that are going to be listed this year? Are, are those still in the works? Are they released now? What What about those details? I'm so glad you asked. Our burn camp this year is, it's Sunday, July 30th to Sunday, August 6th. Actually still recruiting volunteers to help with our camp, especially if you are a, if you identify as male and you are interested in contributing some time to uh, helping our young burn survivors um, be part of camp. Uh, we definitely are still accepting applications. Um, but yeah, camp this year is uh, Sunday, July 30th to Sunday, August 6th. The only other thing that I will remember to ask real quick, Madeline, to follow up with you. Sure. For any of those volunteers that do want to get involved, where exactly do they go? Where do they apply? What's the process like so that we can get more people in that direction? Sure. They can visit www.b as in bravo, r s as in sam, g.org. Uh, please choose the contact us button, uh, fill out the volunteer interest form, and I will get in touch with you right away. Um, for if you are interested in volunteering, you are required to come down to camp on Saturday, July 29th, and then leave when the campers do on August 6th. Uh, so we'd love to hear from you. So that's www.brsg.org. And please fill out a volunteer in just form and you'll hear from me. Okay. Okay. Great. And for, for both of you, how about some of the events, whether if there are things that are always reoccurring or certain situations for burn camp that you always make sure to bring up or certain activities you always do, or if it's always new and innovative every time, can you give some examples or Kanisha, maybe maybe some examples that you had at, at burn camps in the past or some new activities going on this year. What what about the the ins and outs of it? Some of the the fun activities I remember from camp is just like horseback riding. And we would always get together throughout the year and have bowling parties, barbecues outside, um, just staying connected throughout the year, not just at camp, but also um, outside of camp as well. This year at camp, we are constantly trying to innovate with our activities. So our camp theme this year is um, MCBC, the final frontier, going boldly where no camp has gone before. And we are inviting the St. Louis Astronomical Society to come out and host a star party for our campers. So they will actually be able to use a telescope to look at the stars that are in the sky that night. Uh, we are developing an escape room based off of um, 
some of our staff members are lost in space and the camp needs to bring them back. We are also offering, uh, we're trying to partner with an organization that rescues pets in the St. Louis area and bring them down because we are, know the therapeutic value of uh, animals. And then one activity that I really want to mention that happens every year that I think sets our camp apart from other camps is we always give campers an opportunity to share their burn story in a structured, confidential, semi-therapeutic way. So the way this looks at camp is uh, during a rest hour, campers can decide to come and gather in the treehouse and they can share their burn story or they can come and they can listen to others share their burn story. And Kanisha, I don't know if you experienced that at camp or you can talk about the impact of what it means to share your story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember the first time we did share our story and I was so nervous. I didn't want to get in front of anyone until I seen the rest of the campers going up and being brave. And I remember one little girl just came by and just held my hand as I shared my story. And that was the first time I had ever shared my story with anyone. And that was that was that was a powerful night and um, something I would never forget from camp. Not only, Kanisha, have you been through the burn camp, Madeline, not only are you the director of youth programs for this, you know, th there's clearly a huge purpose behind this mission. So for you, both of you individually, I'd like to close this interview with the simple question of why do you both do it? We get to make a huge difference. Um, we get to contribute to the improvement of the lives of the burn survivors and their families. So we can provide a sense of purpose and accomplishment. Um, that That's my, my, true, my true meaning of it. And for me, from the youth development perspective, um, I was a camper myself not at this camp, but at a day camp back on the East Coast for many years. And when I didn't feel comfortable at school, I felt comfortable at camp. And the adults that were my counselors or my mentors at camp really helped form me into the person that I am today. And so that is part of the reason why I love working with Burns Recovered to give that opportunity to other young people to be in an environment that's comfortable and supportive for them. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here with two amazing people that are a part of Burns Recovered. Once again, any of that information, that's brsg.org. Madeline, Kanisha, thank you so much for your time here on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Hi, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile, mile in, in my, my shoes. shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Many business owners and entrepreneurs today are drowning in unsecured debt and just can't stop incurring more. 
Business Debtors Anonymous is a 12-step recovery program where you will receive support for doing business and living life without incurring new unsecured debt. Business Debtors Anonymous offers meetings every day where members support one another to help them stop incurring new unsecured debt. You're not alone. Visit HelpForDebtors.org. That's HelpForDebtors.org. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Visit AA.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. We're back on Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Uh, the Cardinals will have Thursday and Friday off. They'll use that to travel uh, across the pond to London. They'll take on the Cubs. Uh, the Cardinals and Cubs, the longtime rivalry next up in this London series. Uh, it'll be fun to see. They've uh, converted a, a soccer pitch into a baseball diamond. Uh, that'll be great to watch this weekend. And Major League Baseball just a few days ago made it uh, official that the Cardinals will play the San Francisco Giants in Birmingham, Alabama, next June 20th. You're saying, what? What is? why Birmingham? Well, the game will be played at Rickwood Field. It's the oldest ballpark in the United States. And it opened up in August of 1910. And I, I think they may be calling this the Field of Dreams game, and, and that's got a lot of fans upset because... They're associating Field of Dreams, of course, with the ballpark in the Iowa cornfield from the Kevin Costner movie. But there is some great history to Rickwood Field. And I, I guess I guess the Field of Dreams in Iowa, they're, they're doing some renovations, and that's why the game isn't being played there. Um, but Rickwood Field is fascinating. Uh, and, and just by pure coincidence, I had happened to take a tour of this field back in December. Uh, my best friend and I, we uh, uh, grew up uh, on the same Little League teams and are huge baseball fans. And when we found out it was the oldest ballpark in the United States, uh, we uh, took a tour of the park. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. It goes all the way back to uh, August of 1910. Uh, it was the home of the Birmingham Barons and then also the Birmingham Black Barons of the Negro Leagues. And many major leaguers played there. And before he was a major leaguer, Willie Mays, who, of course, you know from the Giants uh, and is from Birmingham, played for the Black Barons. 
And so this game between the Cardinals and the Giants next summer will uh, pay tribute to Willie Mays and also the Negro Leagues. But uh, a fascinating ballpark. And when we went on this tour, uh, it was, it was uh, listen, it's, you know, 112, 13 years old. Uh, it was pretty beat up. Uh, a lot of the, the walkways on the con- concourse, the, the concrete was cracked. Um, real steep steps. And, of course, you know, none of the safety features that you would uh, associate in terms of railings and uh, a safety of getting up and down these, you know, built in 1910. Uh, but on this tour, uh, Lamar was the gentleman that uh, gave us the tour. He told us, he said, we're in talks with Major League Baseball. We want to bring a game here very similar to uh, the Field of Dreams in Iowa. And and after the tour, my friend and I kind of looked at each other. Boy, that's going to be pretty hard to pull off. But um, uh our tour guide was telling us that it would take about $3 million of renovation, but so many things needed to change. They needed to upgrade the lighting. Uh, even the size of the gravel on the warning track needed to meet certain specifications uh, for Major League Baseball for them to consider playing a game there. Uh, and I thought, boy, if they ever pull this off, it's going to be uh, five, maybe ten years. But to, to pull it off and, and find out about it six months later that uh, they're going to be playing a game there. Uh, Ty Cobb, uh, Babe Ruth, and the Yankees would make their way up from uh, their spring trainings as they were heading back to New York. They would play in this ballpark. And uh, and there's some Cardinals ties to Rickwood Field in Birmingham, Alabama. Rogers Hornsby played there. Uh, Dizzy Dean, uh, I believe before he was a Cardinal, he was a young guy, uh, before he started pitching with the Cardinals in 1930, uh, he, he pitched in what they say was one of the most memorable games there, uh, taking on a 43-year-old pitcher from the Barons, uh, a game that Dizzy Dean predicted he would win, and they lost one nothing. And Stan the Man once hit a long home run over the original right field wall, which was, it had to have been over 400 feet away from home plate, where they had the outfield walls just ridiculous. So there is a lot of history uh, with this ballpark and so a lot of people upset oh we should have the field of dreams it should be in iowa look uh the ballpark in iowa is in a cornfield uh that actors played on in a movie in a fake movie uh rickwood field is a ballpark that had actual star players play there and that's kind of neat so this will be really special uh you'll need to check that out June 20th of uh, 2024, next year. The Cardinals and Giants at Rickwood Field, the oldest ballpark in the U.S. I I think it's cool. Uh, We'll be back to wrap things up. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show Me Today.